Good job, guys. <clears throat> but that's how Pabby and David met. He was their page turner. Proverbs chapter 21. We're going to have a good time this morning. Um, We're going to look at a few more solid principles today that will be of great value, not only in our own lives, which we're always trying to improve, but using them in the people that uh, you're going to work with. Keys that will help you better understand every aspect of, of life and the issues of life, the struggles that people have. And the situations, not only that you find your own self in, but uh, dealing with the issues of others to help them in life to get through theirs. You know, you've heard me say it many, 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 many times. The ministry is people. We've gotten the idea today that the ministry is a big church building. The ministry is a great music program, a praise band, or uh, believe it or not, we even got the idea that, uh, that the ministry is opening up a coffee shop or a restaurant, and building a program around all of those things. But that's not true. The real ministry <coughs> is people. And uh, you build people one person at a time. There's no mass production of Christianity. The real work in the ministry is taking an individual or taking a couple, taking a family, and investing in them uh, one-on-one, Going through their problems, as the Bible says, ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. That's a great principle in dealing with people. You know, churches, I don't care who they are, how rich they are, they only have so much money to work with. And uh, most churches take all of the money that they work with and put it into programs, buildings, and building some Taj Mahal, that, some mega church that uh, if they build it, that people are just going to come. Kind of like a field of dreams in Christianity. You may get a lot of people that way who are just looking at the aesthetics and want to see a beautiful place and be a part of it, but you'll never build people that way. Building people's lives is getting down in the dirt with them, going through what they're going through, taking up your own time that you could be doing something else and putting it into, into their lives. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in chapter 21, verse 13, where how we are not to stop our ears to the cry of the poor. Taking what we have and investing it in the lives of the poor, spiritually poor. The ministry will be and always has been people, giving the poor the true riches of the Word of God freely, at our expense, not your expense. Therefore, one of our greatest assets in this church uh, is what we call our people ministry. A number of years ago, I asked for anybody who really wanted to learn the ins and outs of working with people Probably some 75, 80 people uh, came out, have been coming out. We meet once a month. In fact, it's the first Saturday in the month. We're coming back into our fall session here uh, week after next. And I I took those people and I began to uh, take everything I knew, everything I understood, of of helping them give them good, practical, solid Bible (laughs) principles. Uh, for themselves first and then for them to use. And I want to tell you, it's, it's, it's really paid off. You may not see it. I see it. For many of you, it's changed your life. You have an understanding now of being able to deal with any situation. 
I've been in churches all my life. You have people there that are 5, 10, 15, 20. They still don't work with anybody. They still never have won anybody to Christ. They still don't have any impact into the people around them. And I've watched to change your lives. I really have. Uh, you know, teaching you the solid principles. And, and today in Proverbs, it will be a, a great a lesson uh, in reading people, understanding them. Because to reach people and to minister to them, you have to understand them. You have to understand them. And again today, just kind of get a foundation here, a baseline. Uh, our key word will be the word that we have seen over and over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs. It'll be the word understanding. The word understanding from the Bible standpoint simply means you having the wisdom of God and knowing how to use that. Bible talks about that uh, uh, the unsaved world can have the facts, the unsaved world can have, the, have wisdom about worldly things, but what they cannot have is they cannot have understanding. The world will diagnose your problems one way because they will see the facts and maybe they have some wisdom in what they're dealing with, but they'll never have the understanding of seeing your issues from God's standpoint. The error understanding comes with, with its definition, four attributes that are invaluable to you and to me as you try to help yourself and then other people. First one is, is the ability to have discernment. Discernment is what you really have in any given situation. Discernment is to be able to cut through all the smoke, all the fluff, everything, and see it as it really is. The second valuable asset coming out of understanding will be discretion. Discretion is how to apply the principles to any given situation. Most pastors, most people when they deal with people, they do what I call the shotgun effect. You take a shotgun, if I would have a shotgun up here, and I would just point it toward the crowd, and I'd pull the trigger, depending on how far back I was, I'd probably get 20 or 30 of you. But if I just took a rifle with a telescopic sight on it and got back 50, 60, 70 yards, I could only hit you one at a time. Most preachers, most counselors, when they deal with somebody, use the shotgun effect. They never have the discretion to understand what the real problem is. We spend so much of our lives solving problems that are not ever problems and ignoring the things that really need to get fixed. That's why a lot of people, uh, when you're a good counselor, you work with people well, that's why a lot of people won't come and talk to you. You know why? They want somebody that they can talk to that will sympathize with them. They want somebody that they can tell their story to, and uh, you'll never have the discernment nor the discretion to realize you're getting a snow job and cut right down to where the problem is. The third thing that you get from it is perspective. Perspective is what the Bible says about the problem. And the fourth thing that you get is insight. Insight is the ability to look inside an issue or a problem. See it from the inside. Now let's, let's look at our, our verses today in Proverbs chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And then we're going to talk about it, and I think you're going to really learn some good things today. It says in verse 22, A wise man scaleth the city of the mighty, and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. Verse 23 says, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble. Father, we do thank you and praise you today. And we ask you to, uh, ask you to 
take the, what we're looking at today, the Word of God, and, and help us to put it into our lives, to learn. These are such good people. Uh, they just do whatever needs to be done for the cause of Christ, and I love them for that, and they mean the world to me. And I pray uh, today, Father, that you'll help these folks get a little better. Help them look a little deeper. Help them leave today with a little more understanding and help them be a little more valuable, first of all, to you, Lord, and into this church and into me. We love you. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I might just say before you men out there today who are married, take your little exacto cutter and cut verse 23 out. Whoso keepeth his tongue, his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble and give it to your wife. I want you to notice it says him, not her. Now, let's look at these two verses. And uh, verse 22 says, the first part, a wise man scales the city of the mighty. Now, this is a great practical truth in dealing with people. I know you wouldn't think that by looking at it. Allow me to illuminate and broaden your imaginations this morning. But I want to get the doctrinal out of the way first and the historical. I want to put it in a context so in your Bible and your notes you have everything you need here. First of all, doctrinally, the wise man scaling the city of the mighty will be Christ destroying the city of Babylon at the second coming of Christ. That's what the doctrinal application is, first and foremost. It is the Lord coming back, and uh, once you establish the context, which I always tell you how important it is, once you see the doctrinal context of this verse, then it's easy to put it into the perspective. But first and foremost, uh, you'll find this throughout the Bible many, many times. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 will be the definitive passage. That's where the destruction of Babylon, this city, uh, takes place. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, calls her the great whore by which the kings of the earth have committed fornication. In that chapter, it tells you that her color is purple and scarlet. It tells you about her passion is gold and precious stones. And it talks about that her symbol is a golden cup. You get into 17.5, and it's to get the title, Mystery Babylon the Great, the Mother of Harlots and the Abominations of the Earth. That's an incredible title. I don't have time this morning to explain that to you, why it says it that way and why it's called a mystery. That'd be a good Thursday night Bible question. But anyway, that's the title. In verse 6 of chapter 17, the Bible says that this woman has killed the saints of God and is drunken with the blood, their blood. That would be the Dark Ages from uh, 400 A.D. up to about 1500 or 1600. We don't have time to get into that this morning. And then in verse 18, he says this, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And in Revelation chapter 18, we see Proverbs 21 22 coming into effect. We actually see the destruction of the city. After these things, verse 1, chapter 18 of Revelation, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. That angel will be the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't have it in your Bible. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now here's where she falls. Now all this is the fulfillment of what we're looking at in Proverbs. So in a doctrinal application, this will be the bringing down of the devil's stronghold by the second coming of Christ, which we know to be now the city of Babylon. That's what the reference is to back there. Now historically, 
we will see this in a real battle plan that they use throughout the Old Testament. I won't give you a, a bunch of them, but uh, the example would be 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 through 31. Joab takes the city in this fashion. So, doctrinally, it's a second coming of Christ. Historically, it's an actual battle plan to defeat a literal city when you're going to attack, attack it and, and go breaking down the walls and, and, and going in to uh, capture that city. Now, let's put it into practical application now that I got those out of the way. Let's talk about this, how it applies to, to you and to me and the ministry to people. Remember now, the ministry is people. This is a great practical verse in reaching out and reaching people, learning how to get into a person's world to be able to help them. You know, the key to reaching people, the key to reaching people is penetrating their world, penetrating their culture. The word culture is where we get the word cult from, or I guess you get, yeah, get the word cult from the word culture. It means a specific lifestyle that somebody is following. And everybody has a culture. Everybody has your own life. And the key is for someone who is going to help you has to get on the inside. You cannot help people long distance. Most pastors have never learned that. You go to church, church on Sunday morning, all the people that are having issues, you know, they're like this. They're down at the bottom of the steps, and he's up there at the top of the staircase, and every Sunday morning, he's screaming and yelling at them, get up here where I'm at. Don't you know that you got all these problems? Don't you know this? The Bible says this. The Bible says that. Get up here. That's all he does. He screams at them to come up where he is at. That's not reaching and touching people. You'll never win anybody that way. You'll never get into anybody's world that way. He hasn't learned that the only way that you can, you can really affect a person's life is walking down those stairs, putting your arm around those people one at a time, and walking them up those stairs, every one of those stair steps representing an issue in their life. That takes a lot of work. A smart pastor will not only know how to do it himself, he'll take 80 other people and teach them how to do it. He'll replicate himself in, a, in as many people as he can. And in my job, I'm always looking for people who want to work with people. But I'm also looking for people who want to learn to do it right. I'm not interested in your grandma's homespun theology. It may be good chili, but it won't work in the Bible. And so I'm always looking for that. And this is a great example. I, in dealing with people, you have to have four areas. When I wrote my discipleship lessons, which you all use uh, many, many, many years ago, I told them that to work with people in discipleship, but it's true across the board, you have to have four qualities yourself. Four areas of your life. And I see these in your life. Most of the majority of our church have these, if not everybody. But the ones that I work with, the ones that I see and I talk to, and you're part of what I do, boy, you really have it. And I told them, you know, the first thing you have to be doing working with people is you have to be flexible. You can't be rigid when it comes to working with people because their life is going to throw you some curveballs. I always like working with people that when you go to an amusement park or World's of Fun's a place and they have those arcades, and you put, and I always thought this was stupid, you put in a dollar, you get a, a big club in your hand, and then these little gophers come popping up. <laughs> and your job is to be faster than them popping up and hit them, and you get a good point. I've always looked at that as, what's well, a waste of a dollar? But you watch, I thought about it, and those things, you've got to beat them down, and you've got to be fast, you've got to be looking, you've got, you got to coordinate. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what dealing with people is like. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be able to 
hit anything that comes your way with them. If you just stood there and watched those little things popping up and you say, I'm just so rigid, I just can't, you'll never hit anything. You've got to have a club in your hand. If you're really good, get two clubs. And when them little suckers put their heads up, nail them. And when you work with people, it's going to pop up in their life just like that. You've got to be flexible enough to nail them. Not the people, the problems that they have. Well, sometimes the people, but the, the problems that they have. Second thing is you have to be, have an adaptability. You have to adapt to where they're at. Most pastors will never really reach their people in their churches because the people can't get to them. They, they, they won't spend any time with them. They're, they're the pastor. You don't approach them. It's like going into the throne. You've got more access to God in the Bible than you do most pastors. You've got to have an adaptability. Then you've got to have a compatibility. You've got to be able to look at things on the same levels. Be compatible with some things. And then lastly, boy, this is probably the most important because you've got to have a durability because it will wear you out. It will wear you out. And our verse says, A wise man scaleth the city of the mighty and casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. Now look at what we have here as a picture of, of, of dealing with people. The city will be an individual. It'll be a person. Saved or lost. Keep that in mind. The wall of the city is what we as individuals build in our lives to keep and protect us from the world as Christians. Uh, many times I gave you Isaiah 28. We've talked about it many, many times, verse 12 and 13. We're talking about line upon line. Uh, they're a little, uh, uh, you know, doctrine, line upon line. Uh, and, and I showed you how that every Bible doctrine is like a concrete block that you put in your life. And pretty soon you build a wall around you. Just like they did in the cities in the Old Testament. For you and for me, that wall of Bible doctrine made up of one doctrine at a time, it protects you. It protects you from the world coming in. You build it around your, yourself. You build it around your family. You build it around everybody. And nothing can penetrate that wall. And then we know from Ezra and Nehemiah, there's gates in there. But you get to control who and what comes through the gate. See, too many of God's people, they don't have the right doctrine built in their life and everything comes in. And I could say this, it's probably somewhat of an oversimplification, but it's probably very true. The reason why so many of you have so many problems in your life, or not you, but God's people have so many problems in their life, is simply because they have no wall of Bible doctrine. But along with that, when a man or a woman gets away from God, or an unshaved man, their wall that they build will be the things that they put around them to keep God and the Bible from ever getting into their life. And the scaling of that city... Getting over the walls will be what we have to do to try to reach them, whether it's good or whether it's bad. As God's people in the world, but I'm talking to God's people now, as God's people, we will be wall builders, plain and simple. We will build a wall, a Bible doctrine to keep the world out, or we will build a wall of indifference to keep the things of God out. See it all the time. And we, you deal with people, and you, or you talk to somebody, and you'll get, you say, well, yeah, he's a nice guy, or she's a nice gal. Well, they got a wall up. You ever been there? 
We kind of changed it in the 60s and the 70s when Star Trek came out because now they got their shields up. So the photon phasers can't get through. I see it all the time. I'll see God's people. I'll see God's people put a wall up to keep the things of God out because they don't want that to penetrate. And you'll have a wall of coldness. They'll have a wall of indifference. They'll have a wall of being aloof. That means kind of away from everything and everybody. They'll have a wall of distress. Now, a wall of pulling away and a wall of falling away. A wall of Bible doctrine will make you more like Christ. A wall of indifference to the things of God will make you like the world or those you hang out with. And dealing with people is fundamentally all it is. We're getting down to the basics today. If you can't get this, you probably can't get much. Dealing with people is funny. I put all the books aside, put all the tapes aside, put everything away. Listen to me. Dealing with people is fundamentally the ability to get on the inside of their lives. You'll never help people from a distance or from the outside. You, that's why we do what we do one-on-one. You gals that are talking about the gems and you older gals who work with the younger gal. You guys who disciple those little guys and work with them. You guys who take the kids from camp and you have that leadership training. What, you know, we can call it whatever we want. We can name it whatever we want. I know. You have your group called the gems. We have ours called leadership training. We have this. We have that. You have discipleship. All we're doing getting into the inside of their life. I found in my own ministry and dealing with people, one of the first things I want to do with somebody is get in their world and understand what's important to them. Too many Christians want to work with people only on the basis of what's important to them. You'll never reach people that way. And I'll tell you something else. That's something you can't fake. I don't like baseball. I'm not a, I mean, I wouldn't ban it if I was president. But it's the most... Forget baseball. I hate golf. Now, I hate golf. You guys who like to play golf, I have more respect for you than I could ever say because I couldn't do it. I tried it one time. I'm not talking about something I didn't try. I tried it one time. I was terrible. They used to tell me, Bob, you hit the ball farther and harder than anybody I've ever seen in my life. The only problem is when you go this way, it goes that way. My last golf outing was my last because I, I knew I was I, – I, that's why it's called my last golf outing. <laughs> Write that down. You want to remember that. Because I knew I was going to be in prison for murder or manslaughter. Four guys coming down a golf cart, down like here. I'm this way. I hit that ball as hard as I could. That ball went that way. Like slow motion, went inside that golf cart, rattled around, bing, 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 bing. Those guys are driving the car holes, went in the lake, man. That ball is going around there, and I come down, and I said, man, I am so, so sorry. He said, oh, man, it's all right. It's okay. Nobody was hurt. Put them up. I never saw the value of just beating the snot out of a little white ball. 
and getting so upset when it wants to hide in the woods or the tall grass because it's tired of getting hit. <laughs> I've seen people throw their golf clubs, bend their clubs. I mean, I've seen them get mad and cuss, just get terrible because, you know, I've never understood the terminology. What's your birdie over par got to do with life? <laughs> really. I, I've never figured it out. And I know you got to have, I know it's all in the, it's all in, you got to keep your, I don't know what I'm talking about. You got to keep your arms straight. Can you ever try to hit something like that? I already had one back surgery. I don't need another one. Most people, they want to deal with people on their terms. You can't. You, you just can't. You have to learn how to get into their world. The ability to scale the walls of a mighty city. Now, let me just tell you on a side note here. That's why we put people one-on-one. That's why we have our support groups. That's why that, that I'm always looking for people who are willing to put those four things in their lives. If you have issues here, it's not just, you're not just going to get one person. You're going to get whatever you need, however long it takes. You have to learn how to get into their world, scale those walls that they build up around you. And you don't want to knock them down with a battering ram. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't solve anything. You want to be able to scale the wall and get into their world. And there's a way that you do that. The ability to scale the walls of a mighty city. Now, I'm going to give you, you husbands a little inside note here. Most husbands never, never learn what I'm about to say right now about scaling walls. Wives, women come in three categories as far as what they need. Some will be very low maintenance, some will be medium maintenance, and some will be high maintenance. And, you know, a woman is like, is like a, a cupboard with a bunch of little boxes in it. And in those boxes will be different emotional values. There'll be little things that, and, 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 and a husband doesn't understand, he's got the key to it. And, when, and when it, there's some things that she'll open the box and she'll tell you about. There's some things, and she'll be glad to tell you about it when she tells you. There'll be some things that she will open those little boxes, and, but there's some things that she won't. Most husbands don't know how to scale that wall to open up those boxes to find out the things that she won't tell you or she's struggling with but doesn't want to say to you. you our approach is that, well, what's wrong? Nothing. Come on, what's wrong? Nothing. Okay, I'm gone. See, <laughs> that's not the way to do it. You have to understand that the penetrating her culture is opening up every one of those boxes and have the ability to do it. When marriage's problems start, this is where it starts. This is where it starts. Overcoming the walls that people put up. Now I say this fully understanding that there'll be some people that you'll never reach no matter what you do. I get that. This is not a fix-all for every situation. But I want you to know this. Even in those situations, it's invaluable to see and understand why you can't. It's invaluable in an overall scope of things to under the, understand the cause and the effect of issues in people's lives. And this is the value of dealing with people. You gain incredible insight into many things. In my Bible, I have cataloged over the years, there's probably 50 or 60 main patterns of human nature found in the Bible. Then probably maybe two couple hundred of, 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 of lesser ones. But when the main battery of, of human nature, there's probably, uh, there's probably 50 or 60 main concepts that detail out the patterns of human nature. 
And they're, they're throughout the Bible. They're not in one book. You've got to start and go all the way through. And when you want to get into a person's world to help them, and they have up a wall, it's understanding these principles that help you scale the wall. You've got to understand through the discernment, the discretion, the perspective, you've got to understand what you're up against, what you're dealing with. Otherwise, it's just a humongous wall. And this is what the biblical principles do. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man uh, that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Now, that's a great verse because most people want to impose their religion and Christianity on somebody else who doesn't want it. I get it. There are times that needs to be done. But here's a verse that simply says, Somebody's asking you what you got on the inside. You know why? Because they see something different in you. Your life and your walk with God can be the greatest wall breaker that you've ever found in your life. You know why? Because behind those walls of indifference, behind those walls of being cold, behind those walls of all the things there, they're not happy. That's another part of the wall. It masks the sadness of life and all the disappointments in life. They'll see your life. They'll see you doing something. They'll see God in your life, your family. They'll see you happy. They'll see all the things that's going on in your life, the people that you're working with and how people are drawn to you and you want to, and your ministry is an outward thing. They're going to want that. They're going to want that. I never saw a bum down on Skid Row go up to another bum and say, I want to be like you. You know those guys that stand on the street corner with the signs, I'm hungry, help me, give me food? You know what they're actually saying? They're coming to you because they don't have what they have in life that you have. And what their essence is saying is, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. I want to have what you have, and I want you to help me. Now, they're talking about physical things, but in a spiritual sense, there are people in our lives that you just don't see them. They're standing on the street corner of your spiritual world, holding up a sign saying, help me, I'm starving to death, I need something to eat. Using what you know and allowing the them to allow you to get on the inside to break up the walls. Now, there's two things you've got to remember to be effective. And these are basic, simple things, but they're true things. Two fundamental things in dealing with people. And I, and, I, and I give you this all the time. We've talked about it in people ministry, and these are the kind of things we deal with. But, you know, two fundamental, if I just would boil it down to two things, here it is. Two things you must remember to be effective in dealing with people. Number one, you have to be smarter than the problem. Many of God's people dealing with people cause a problem where there wasn't even a problem. You've got to be smarter than the problem. And then the second thing, oh, and this is the killer. You've got to learn don't take rejection personally because it's going to happen. You're going to find out that there is a way around every issue that you have to deal with in your own life and dealing with the lives of others. You learn how to negotiate and navigate around those things to get inside their wall. You know, in dealing with people, uh, one, of the, one of the key words will be the word objectivity. 
being objective. Never lose your ability to see what you're up against as it really is without getting your emotions involved. I've had couples that were having problems in marriage, and the wife would say, let's go and talk to Bob. And the husband would say, no, I ain't talking to Bob. He always takes the woman's side. Now, that's kind of a half-truth. And that kind of a statement already tells me where the problem really does lie. It's you. Because that kind of attitude tells me, who cares? Who cares if somebody takes the woman's side as long as the woman's side is the Bible side? Who cares if you're wrong? What you're telling me is, if I'm wrong, and he shows me in the Bible, I don't want to fix it. That's exactly what you're saying. And I'm, I'm telling you, I never take anybody's side. I'm totally objective. I know, I know like Solomon, you're both worthless. And what the only thing that's going to fix it is you got things you got to fix, sir. Ma'am, you got things that you got to fix. And I'll tell you something, ma'am. You'll never fix him by nagging at him, and you'll never fix her by nagging at her. You'll only fix each other by you stepping back and fixing yourselves first. See? Now, there are times when they come in, and the woman's side is the biblical side. There's times the times they come in, and the man's side is the biblical side. I don't get my emotions involved. I don't like somebody that much that I'm going to violate the biblical principles just so I can make you happy. My whole life has been built on making you unhappy when it comes to the Bible truth. You have to understand that. You have to know that. And you know, it's a thing where you have to be smarter than the problem. People have issues for only one of two reasons. If they're lost, it's because they don't have Christ and they have no fulfillment, and so it leads them to all kinds of disappointing problems. If they're saved, it's because they're out of fellowship with God, they're not doing what's right with God, and they're having all kinds of issues in their life because of that. And so they both build walls. Building a wall as a pattern of human nature, it's a natural defensive mechanism. We all do it. The more spiritual become the more you learn not to do it. But it's a trait of human nature. I don't want you to hurt me. I've been in a lot of bad relationships, and I've had a lot of bad uh, uh, men in my life or women in my life, so therefore I've built up a wall that I don't really want somebody to penetrate that wall to be my friend. I get that. I get that. Somebody says, well, you know, I had 17 bad marriages and all this stuff, you know, and I just got a wall up about marriage. When you start to talk about marriage, I leave the bad taste in his mouth. I get that. I get that. I get that. But the bottom line is, it, 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 you have to learn how to penetrate that. You have to realize that in a good, godly way, sweet, kind way, by becoming their friend and building into their life, you have to get a point across that you may have had 17 bad marriages, but it's simply because you chose to have 17 bad marriages. You didn't open up a fresh box of cereal when the prize inside was a bad marriage. You looked at the situation, knew the past situations, and you chose to go into another bad scenario. Building a wall up with that is your way of saying, I don't want to deal with it. But for you ever to be happy, you have to deal with it. It has to be done. And it's a thing where uh, you have to understand that uh, you don't take rejection personally. There will be people who don't want to hear what you've got to say. There will be people that you have the best intentions. You'll start to help them, start to work with them, 
and you'll start to scale the wall. At about that time, you get three quarters up the wall, you're going to look up, and they put a spear down through you to knock you off the wall. It's okay. It's okay. It's part of the ministry. It's part of life. They will, they will shut out all that uh, they can do uh, against what uh, they want to do. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. You know what? Here's the downside of building a wall outside a wall of Bible doctrine. You build a wall of your life of indifference. You build a wall around your life of being cold and being aloof and not want to hear the things of God. You know what that wall around your city, your body turns into? It turns into your personal prison. Where you and I build the doctrines that build the wall of our strength, you build the wall brick by brick with bars. And they lock you in. The walls, they become their prison. Your job and my job is to bust you out of jail. Put a hacksaw on a cake so you can saw those bars through. We call those strongholds. In the people ministry, we go through all the patterns and the principles of people. And we use the Bible as a guidebook to reach people, taking the city, scaling the walls. One of the greatest models of that in the Bible is found over there in 2 Kings chapter 4. It's a gold mine. And you know the story. Elisha, it's a story of the Shumanite woman and her son. Her son dies. Nobody knows how he died. And he's dead. She believes in God, so she sends for the prophet of God, whose name is Elisha. Elijah's gone now. Elijah finally, Elisha finally shows up, and the boy is dead. Now, that dead boy is a picture of unsaved people who are dead in trespasses of sin. In a practical way, it's a picture of a Christian who's dead spiritually. Now, she wants her boy alive. Elisha does one of the strangest things in the Bible. And people have asked this question a hundred times over my tenure in Bible studies and dealing and teaching the Bible. He crawls on top of that kid and he puts his mouth to that boy's mouth. Then the Bible says that he puts his hands on that boy's hand. Now he's laying on top of him. He puts his mouth on his mouth. He puts his hands on his hands. And then the Bible says he puts his eyes on his eyes. The moment he does that, the boy starts to whack warm. He comes back to life. And he gives life to that dead kid. Though I know doctrinally that's a picture of the nation of Israel. I get that. And all those ramifications. But it's a great example of what you and I have to do to build and, and scale walls of people's lives and put ourselves on the inside. The first thing he does is he put his, the Bible says he puts his mouth through his mouth. To me, the boy's dead, picture of an unsaved person or picture of a Christian out of fellowship with God. To me, that means as the prophet of God, the man of God, and you as the man or the woman of God dealing with people, the first thing you've got to do to penetrate their inside of them is understand why they talk the way they talk. Then he says that he put his hands on his hand. The second thing you need to realize is why unsaved people and Christians out of fellowship of God do the things that they do. Then the third thing he says is eyes to his eyes. And that means that you and I, in a practical application, we have to be able to understand why unsaved people and why Christians out of fellowship 
look at things the way that they do. Now, when you are smarter than the smarter than the problem and don't take things personal, you'll use the understanding of these three aspects to scale over any wall that anybody's ever built. And you do it because you love them unconditionally. You've got no dog in the fight. You've got no emotions involved. You want them to do right, but at the same time, you realize another great principle that I can't want, I can't want anybody to do right more than they do. The moment I do, you take advantage of me. So I understand all these things, and I, you know, I look at these things. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. There it is. You love somebody unconditionally. They allow you in. You know what you're able to do? You're able to deal with their sins, get them forgiven, and through the process of scaling that wall, you cover their sin with the blood of Christ, either saved or, saved or unsaved. Romans 15, 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath. We're so quick to get in an argument with somebody. We're so quick to get in a fight with somebody. We're so quick to get loud and get out of control with somebody. And yet that'll never, never, never get you over the wall. You have to have control of who you are. You have to be able to not let your emotions figure in, that you understand why they say the things that they say. You understand why they see the things the way they do, and you understand why they do the things that they do, and you don't take it personal. Then you're smarter than the problem. Not just what to say, but how you say it. And then when not to say it. Wisdom and understanding. Last week we talked about the oil and the treasure in our dwelling. The treasure being the Word of God, the oil being the Holy Spirit of God, and learning how to use those in your life. Now look at the last part of the verse. And casteth down the strength of the confidence thereof. Now this is a really good principle. People who won't do right and build walls do so to build the confidence that they're doing right when they're really not. Now, I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear what I said. People who won't do right and build walls, they build those walls to build a false confidence that what they're doing is right when it's not really right. Now, that right there is worth a million dollars if you ever learn it. People who do wrong, they lack the confidence. That's why the Bible says to get themselves the confidence, they have to sear their conscience with a hot iron. They have to convince themselves that even though they're doing is against the Bible, that it's okay for me. They build the wall to wall out the conviction. They build the wall so they don't have to read their Bible. They don't have to come to church whenever they want to. They can do whatever they want to do. They don't have to ever get in ministry. They don't have to ever work with anybody. They can go their whole Christian life and never win one person to Christ, and they're okay. That's a nice set of walls you got going up around you. My mom used to say, a lot of things she said. I can't tell you most of them. My mother used to say that birds of a feather flock together. My mom didn't know where that came from, but that's Revelation chapter 18, where I read earlier about the 
scaling of the Babylon. And that's an amazing thing because it is so true. Now that's why when people begin to get out of fellowship and they begin to take offense at the clear preaching of the Bible, Bible study, you can hear a sermon and it's the greatest sermon in the world and changes your life. You get four or five things out of it. They can hear the same sermon and say, I didn't get anything out of it. Well, the answer to that is you only get out of what you put into it. One of you came with a wall of Bible doctrine and you want more doctrine to build that wall higher. The other one, you already got your wall built up of indifference and you don't want to let the preaching penetrate that wall. I get it. Question is, do you get it? That's how it works. I told you this was going to be a good practical lesson. You're going to learn more today about dealing with people. You're going to learn more today about dealing with yourself. That was a true statement my mama told me. That's why when people begin to get out of fellowship and take offense to the preaching, they begin to build that wall of false confidence. And you know exactly what they do, don't you? Sure you do. They can't have a confidence that what they're doing is right because it's wrong. So they find other birds of the same feather. They find other people who have the same gripes, the same complaints. They'll congregate, coagulate. They'll get all together and people out of fellowship they all together have a building program where they build the walls and in all of their indifference they find the false confidence that they're lacking. Hell yeah, that's how it works. I've seen it all in my ministry. Listen, one of the main qualities that people need in their life is confidence. I want to say this. The reason why some of God's people will never do anything for God, the reason why you'll go, they'll go their whole life and never win a soul to Christ. They'll go their whole life and they'll struggle with this, they'll struggle with that, they'll struggle with all the things that they struggle with. And they'll never do anything meaningful for God. They may go to church, it'll be sparingly. They'll put everything else in their world ahead of that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, If you don't have confidence in God and the Word of God, you're not going to do anything for the Lord. We could have called our Iron Man competition yesterday when I was in the military. They didn't call it an Iron Man. That didn't know what that was. You know what they called a course like that? It was much tougher than that. You know what they called it? Confidence course. It was a course. Am I right, Sam? It was a course that you ran that had unbelievable objects, uh, obstacles. I mean, some of those towers were like 60 feet in the air and you had to go from level to level to level without any safety harness on and the only way you could get to the next level is stand on the edge. You're 40 feet up. Put your hands here and then pull yourself up, swing yourself body over and then go up everyone to 60 feet in the air. They had a wall, uh, two telephone poles with going up. You had to go all the way up those, like those two-by-fours we had yesterday. You had to crawl all the way up, 80 feet in the air, cross over and come down the other side. Scared to death. But you know what? Built confidence. 
Confidence is you attempting to do something that you think you can't do, and then you can do it, and it builds the confidence. Now, in the military, I get it. It comes from your spirit within. But in Christianity, it doesn't come by your own spirit. It comes by you stepping out by faith, doing something for God, Him coming down and getting you through it. I don't know how many times some of you told me, well, I taught a discipleship lesson. I was scared to death. I didn't thought I would do all kinds of stupid stuff. When I started doing it, it's just like it came from everywhere. You thought, I, I thought I'd only have about five minutes of material. Bob, I discipled for nine hours and 47 minutes. Your confidence and my confidence only come from what we do from the Lord. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The new Bible say I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. That's because the latency in church age thinks that God comes down and strengthens you. Uh-uh. He doesn't do that. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The which there is the things. You start doing the things for God, that's what he takes and strengthens you and builds your confidence. That's worth a million dollars to come today for. see, they can't have the confidence. So they build other people around them, and they come up with this false confidence. That, and, and that's why, honestly, that's why the whole, they'll never sit down with anybody and go to the Bible to solve their problem. You know why? It would really solve their problem. And when, when you and I build a wall of Bible doctrine, then we have the confidence in the book. And when we build a wall of the world or self or whatever, then it will be a confidence that you have to constantly maintain. I don't have to maintain my confidence. I just stay in the book. I don't have to build anything to it. I hope it's built on nothing less than Jesus brought in life righteousness. I, I know, I know where it's at. And when you scale the wall, you just show them on the inside a better confidence. That's all. Hey. Don't put any confidence in this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says, I have, I, I, I'm to have no confidence in my flesh. Ephesians 3, 12 says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith in him. Now look at verse 23 here. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble. Now, this verse will go right along with the last one in verse 22 in your understanding and dealing with people. Our ability to know when to speak and when not to speak and what to say and what we say when we do speak. When your vessel, this is last week now, is filled with the treasure, the Word of God, and the oil, the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God on the Holy Spirit, then you will be led of the Holy Spirit of God to say exactly what you need to say at the right time. Now, this is why fundamentally, going back to my little illustration of some of your fears about discipling somebody or teaching a lesson or doing a prayer group, I don't know how many times somebody said, oh, I just, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. Can you pray? Well, yeah, I can pray. Okay, can just take the prayer and refashion it into five or six more sentences. Well, I couldn't look at the people. Do you close your eyes when you pray? Yeah, close your eyes when you talk to the people. It's, it's simple. You've got to build confidence. And when you start to do that, I'm going to tell you, the moment you start to open up that and you lay it out, you're going to think, man, this is, 
This is, uh, boy, this is, I'm going to do a terrible job with this. I am so nervous. I am so afraid. Let me tell you something. The moment you step in there, if you're doing God's work and you're doing it with the right attitude of heart because you love God, I don't care how scared you are. The, the more afraid you are, the better it's going to be. Amen. I'd much have you go in there shaking and knees knocking and somebody saying, what is that? I like that beat. What is that? You sit down, you open up that thing, the Holy Spirit of God comes in, that fills you up, and boy, I'll tell you what, Charles Haddon Spurgeon didn't do as well. But you know what it does? Builds your confidence. You know what you need as a child of God? Confidence. You know why some of you won't ever get to the point in your life where you ever do anything for God at all? No confidence. And some of you come to the place when you get out of fellowship with God, you'll build a confidence of a wall around you that is totally outside the Word of God all to build a false confidence that you're still maintaining your self-righteousness when if you had the standard of judgment seat of Christ today, you'd be in trouble. We'd all be in trouble, but you know what I'm saying. Now, there's a great example of this found in Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just tell you the story. It's a story of the great revival in Samaria with Philip as the evangelist. And it's a great probably the greatest picture in the Bible of how what really happened the day you and I got saved. I'd say it's the definitive passage on it, but it certainly is also the definitive passage on how to win someone to Christ under the leading of the Holy Spirit of God. It shows through a man's life and by him being guided by the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God, the three different aspects of soul winning. Now I realize that this is unheard of today. Because the Bible is unheard of today. We just think that we're to win everybody to Christ. There's a thousand books out there that will show you how to win every person to Christ that you ever meet. There's about another book out there that says, I win, I, out of five people I meet, I'll win three of them to Christ. And those are the kinds of Laodicea and material that's out there today that people read and quit reading the Bible and don't get it. The Bible teaches very clear in Acts chapter 8 that there's three aspects to soul winning. There's a sowing, there's a watering, and there's a reaping. And the danger for you and for me is to be so out of touch with the Holy Spirit of God because that is the only way you know when to do what. The last thing you want to do is to try to reap when God just wants you to sow. The worst thing you could ever do is sowing or watering when God wants you to reap. And when you come through that, you'll find that there's three places in there, uh, in that chapter, verse 26, verse 29, verse 39, where we see that Philip is so in touch with the Holy Spirit of God. He's so in touch with the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 26, the Holy Spirit of God says, go here. In verse 29, now that he's here, the Holy Spirit of God says, go to him and say this. And in verse 39, he says, okay, you went there, you told him what I told you, now move out, we're going someplace else. Shut up. You look at that Ethiopian eunuch, you see it. He's reading Isaiah 53 on the back of a chariot. Wait, don't worry, got that, but somebody showed. I promise you the person that gave him that was praying for him, and he was being watered. Now, unbeknownst to the guy who sowed it, unbeknownst to the guy who was watering it, Philip shows up, and he reaps him. I, I teach from this passage here that God has prepared sinners and prepared servants. You're here this morning if you want to look at it with understanding. You're at Thursday night if you want to look at it with understanding. You're in people ministry or institute if you want to look at it from the baseline. 
You're here for one reason, and that is so God can prepare you as his servant. And right now, while he's preparing you, I guarantee you, out there, wherever you work, out there in your neighborhood, out there someplace in your life, he's preparing a sinner. And the Holy Spirit of God wants to take the prepared servant and the prepared sinner and bring them together. Now, here's the problem. God's got more prepared sinners than he's got prepared servants. We got our walls up. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says, I have planted, Paul speaking, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. See that thing? Sowing, watering, reaping. Understanding God's timing in everything and through the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God to know when to speak and when not to speak. And the verse says, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from trouble. Now, there's another good example of this found in Proverbs chapter 26. And I want to look at this. Turn back to Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. One of the verses in the Bible that looks like it's a contradiction. We had a verse like that on Thursday night in Bible study, didn't we? Yes, we did. And, of course, I showed you how that most places in the Bible that lay themselves out as a contradiction are great truths waiting to be unearthed. And it was true... uh, it was true about David numbering the people the other night, and it's going to be true now in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. Now, here it is. Great verses. Proverbs 26, 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest, he also, uh, lest uh, they also be like unto him. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. Now, there's two verses, side by side, say two different things. Now, one place says, don't answer the fool. The other says, answer the fool. Now, what do you do with that? Well, let's, 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 let's apply the principles of the Bible. Let's just don't go off half-cocked and come up with something. First of all, you got two fools. you got two fools in life. Both fools are messed up in the Bible. And there's two ways to answer him based on your understanding and your discernment of what he is and where you're at through the Holy Spirit of God leading you. Now, let me explain the two. Based on Proverbs 21, 23, when to speak, when not to speak. Now, keep in mind, they're both fools and they're in folly, but you don't deal with them the same way. Verse 4, when you don't answer the fool, according to his folly, it means that he's messed up, but he's looking for the truth. So you go easy on him. You don't beat him up. You teach him the truth. He may be a fool. He may be in folly, but you guide him through it, through the word of God. I've had people all my life that have some of the stupidest stuff you ever heard in your life. They got their mind bent out of shape at a Bible college someplace or reading somebody's book that they didn't think the King James Bible was the Word of God. They didn't think that this verse meant this, or they thought you could lose your salvation, or they got into Hebrews and got all screwed up in the book of Hebrews, all of those things. They're a fool, and they're in complete folly. But through the Holy Spirit of God and your discernment, your discretion, your ability to scale that wall and look on the inside and your perspective of what you have, you know he's searching for the truth. The last thing you want to do is burn him. You want to take him, you want to 
listen to him, you want to take him into the scriptures, you want to show him, you want to give him the truth, you want to lovingly be there for him. If he doesn't get it the first time, you can tell by his spirit that he wants the truth. He doesn't want to fight. He wants the truth. So in that case, you don't answer him according to his folly. You answer him according to the Bible. Now look at verse 5. Here you have a foe in his folly, but he's looking for a fight. He's already made his mind up what he believes. He's not coming at you to learn anything. He's coming after you. He's not interested in the truth, but only his heresy. He wants to take on the Bible truth within his heresy. So you answer him according to his folly. Again, the Holy Spirit of God, through the four aspects of understanding, it shows you and leads just like Philip with the Holy Spirit of God with the eunuch. It shows you exactly what you've got, what you're dealing with, and then tells you when to speak, when not to speak. So you answer this guy according to his folly. I mean you nail him. You strip him. Notice it says, answer a fool according to his folly. has to be wise in his own conceit. When you've got a guy like this, what you want to take from him what you want to destroy is what he's hanging on to is his conceit. That's pride. And you don't deal with conceit or pride by being nice. You deal with it by nailing him. The only way to combat conceit is with the principles of the Word of God. Remember what the Bible says, pride cometh before a what? So you give him the fall. You take him places within his heresy that he has never learned and never studied that he cannot defend. It's nothing personal. I've had guys and I liked them. I wish they'd have been right guys with the Bible. We could have got along good together. And I like them and I love it. It ain't nothing personal. But when it comes down to this book, that you want to teach heresy? You want to get up and teach this and teach that and believe this? And I don't care what you believe, but you want to come after me and you want to learn, you and me are good. You want to come after me because you think you're going to put me down and show me as the Bible wrong? you got a war on your hands. And as one, you ain't going to win. I've been in this book almost 50 years. I've been going through the principles that show you the fallacy of heresy while most of God's people were sitting on Saturday morning watching comics nodding on their fudgesicle. I know what the book says. I know where it lays itself out. And I'll tell you, every heresy that a man comes up with, every cult, every heresy that somebody brings up and gets involved in, it will have its area that is undefendable. A cult will be a strong city. An individual who's part of that will become a strong city. It has a wall around it. When you have to go on the attack, you know your enemy and you know his weak points. In combat, and I keep using that, but because somewhere in the Bible I thought that Jesus Christ was the captain of my salvation. Somewhere in the Bible I thought I was told to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Somewhere in the Bible I read that I got the armor of God that I, I, I'm in a warfare, not a flesh and blood warfare, but a spiritual warfare. I thought we had hymnals that sang onward Christian soldiers. 
I thought we had an, a, a, a hymnal that talked about the, the battle, this battle cry, sound the battle cry, going to war. And that was years ago. Christianity has effeminate now. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to be nice. And you don't like a guy like me. I can be the nicest guy on the planet, but boy, can I come over your wall. You're fair and play right and want to learn the Bible? I'll give you the shirt off my back and everything I got to give you what you want. You want to attack that book after what God gave me in that book and what he's done for me? Come on, baby. Let's go to war. In combat, there's two key elements in victory and battle. And it's the same, too, in in the spiritual warfare. Number one, know your enemy. Don't ever go to war with an enemy you don't understand. You will get clobbered. You look at that enemy, you understand his strengths. You understand his weaknesses. You understand how he's trained. You understand what he's trained in. One of the failures in in the Pacific War in World War II was the failure of America not understanding the Japanese mindset uh, about taking prisoners of war. We as Americans were fair. We took the Germans, brought the prisoners over here. They lived right up here in Liberty, Missouri, right along the freeway there. That's where they used to have the, they put them in Topeka. They put them down south. They could go to movies. They worked on farms and did all kinds of, they didn't even have any guards. We treated them like, like, like human beings. The Germans didn't do as well. They locked you up in a stalag and they put you in there and they didn't hardly feed you and they took your Red Cross parcels and took them for themselves. But it was livable. But the Japanese, the Japanese followed the Bushido Code. You die, you give your life in combat. And if you surrender or are taken prisoner, you're unworthy to be treated anywhere. And they treated them like dogs. When they were on Okinawa, there was like, at Okinawa, there was like 70,000 Japanese on Okinawa. 300 of them was all that was left. They massacred many of them. Many of them, many of them, instead of surrendering when the battle was lost, went into a cave and blew themselves up. Families putting their arms around, holding grenades. Civilians on that island walking over to the cliffs watching the Americans plead with them and jumping off with their kids in each hand. America was unprepared for that kind of warfare. They didn't understand. They'd take prisoners of war and they'd starve them to death. And the Bataan Beth March, when the Bataan and Corregidor surrendered, they marched them 80 miles in the hot sun of the Philippine Islands. No water, no food. Many of the GNIs had dysentery. I've actually seen pictures of those GIs walking 80 miles while they're carrying their own intestines in their hands. You stop, they shoot you. You'd fall down, they'd bayonet you. They'd taunt you. Then they'd march away. Then they starved them when they got there. When the end of the war was coming near, many of Americans, instead of looking forward to being repatriated and going home, you know what the Japanese did? They put them in bunkers, 200 at a time, filled it with gasoline while they were alive and burned them up. We didn't understand that. We're fair play, guys. We'll give you food. Yeah, we, you, we were at war, but now you surrendered. Come on, I'll be your buddy. Let's go to a movie. Let's go get a soda. You have to know your enemy. 
Some of the cults and the religions out there will throw you in a cell, dump you gasoline, and burn you. You need to know their strengths and their weaknesses. And then you need to know the terrain you're going to fight on. In combat, there's always two concepts of terrain, high ground and low ground. You never fight a battle on low ground. You always fight it on the high ground. And when you deal with a cult or an individual caught up in a heresy or whatever, and you want to scale the wall, first of all, you know more about what they're believing than they know. You know where they're vulnerable. You know their soft points. You never attack them on their strong points. You always attack them on their soft points. You hit them where they can't defend themselves. And then when you find that soft spot where they can't defend themselves, you just let him have it. You beat him senseless all day long. You never give up the high ground. Giving up the high ground means that you lose control of the situation. You never lose the control of the situation. Now, I don't ever fear about getting into a, a battle with somebody like that. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I'll tell you why. I'll never give up the high ground. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what religion you're in. I don't care if you're Jehovah Witness. I don't care if you're a moron. I don't care if you're a seven-day disadvantage. It doesn't mean anything to me. I know more about it than you do, and I know your weakness. And we're not going to talk about whether there's a hell or not. We're not going to talk about was, was Muhammad a prophet of God. We're going to go places that you're going to look at me like a deer in the headlights in the middle of the night and not have an answer. And when I get there, I'm going to clobber you. I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. You have the truth. Answer that. You have no answer. All these people, you know, well, I'm, we'll talk about him. Hey, they have learned a circular reasoning that they bring you. They know what you're going to bring up, and they have their answers before you ever go there. You got to go someplace that they don't know you're going. Never lose the high ground. Never lose the high ground. Every cult will have its undefendable position. Every person out of fellowship with God will have their undefendable position. Every heresy will have a place where you can get in and over that wall with a high ground, find it, and hit them all day long. And when you have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God working in you to be a wise man, uh, you'll have with that understanding. And with that will be the four things that come in with understanding. You'll have the discernment to understand. You'll have the discretion to know when to say what. Decide which fool is which. You'll have the perspective to know what you're dealing with and where you're at. Then you'll have the insight. You'll see any situation from the inside out. Not on the outside trying to look in. That's worth a million dollars. The only way to work a situation is to get on the inside and see it for what it is. This idea of you standing on the outside trying to get in, look in and deal with them before you know what's in there, you're going to get clobbered every time. You've got to know more about it than they do. When you're out of fellowship with God, I'm going to know more about you being out of fellowship than you do. You know why? Because I've been there myself. I know how I lied to God. I know how I faked myself to God. I know everything. That human nature just follows the same patterns. And then you'll have the ability to scale any wall up any city or any person. You'll know exactly how to, uh, how to, uh, how to uh, approach each scenario to get into their world, to give them the truth. Again, it doesn't mean that you'll win all of them and you'll get them. It doesn't mean that. That's not my job. 
but it does mean that I'll get the opportunity to do my job, and that's to give them the truth. I'm not responsible with anybody does with the truth that I give them. I'm just responsible to always give you the truth. And that's my job. Through my teaching and my preaching and the treasure and the oil in our dwellings, in me, in earthen vessels. This is exactly what the Bible is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when it says, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Not perfect as far as sinless perfection, though you are in Christ Jesus, but rather perfect to the work of God. By thoroughly, from the inside out, God perfecting you giving you the ability to look at any scenario, any person, because everybody's going to build their walls up. We saw it in Proverbs that we're able to scale that city, bring the confidence down to get them the truth, giving you what you need to penetrate any culture, scale any wall that somebody has put up. This is the good work that is talked about in Philippians 1.6, being confident. Are you? Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Are you confident in that? Do you know that he saved you for that purpose, saved you for a reason? That he put those things in your life and gave you a church, gave you a Bible, gave you a pastor, gave you friends, in many cases gave you a mom and dad who loved that book and loved everything. And even if he didn't give you a mom and dad that loved it, God made up the difference that you got it anyhow. This is a great set of principles to learn by. Every person God's going to put into your world, a prepared sinner, prepared servant, every person that God is going to put in your world, in your life, He's going to put there for you. It's by God's design. He has worked tirelessly getting that person to a certain point. He has tried to work tirelessly in your life and my life to get us to a certain point that he can put the prepared sinner and the prepared servant together, and you and I would understand how to scale that wall, how to take down that city. Two kinds of fools, those who want to fight you, those who want to learn from you. Your ability to discern which is which. Help the one, hold the other accountable. Give confidence to the one, take the confidence away and the conceit from the other. And that's what you do. Learn how to deal with people from the inside out. Seeing them and understanding them. You cannot minister to people from a distance. You can't do it just from the pulpit. You can't do it through just the internet. You can't do it through all, I don't care how great all the telecommunications are that we have today. Let me tell you something. We have telecommunications, we have the internet, we have Skype, we have all the different things that you can do. We have laser printing, we can send text messages and emails around the world. People are watching this right now all around the world or maybe this afternoon during a time change. You know what, we have all that stuff. We have everything going on. You can get on a plane here today in Kansas City and in 9, 10 hours you can be in Europe. You can go around the world in 18 hours. You can go everywhere in this world. They print more Bibles now than they've ever printed before. I mean, they're everywhere. Tracks by the millions and millions and millions. And you know what? We're getting less done with all that than they were getting in the book of Acts. You know why? Because all those things mean nothing without the Holy Spirit of God, the treasure, the oil. And I'm telling you, that's where it's at. You know, nothing will ever replace, no megachurch, 
no technology, nothing will ever, 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 ever replace the greatest model in the Bible in reaching people. And that is Jesus Christ leaving the throne of heaven, coming down to me, a worthless sinner. Now let me ask you a question. Are you willing to get off your throne and come down to the sinners? Reaching people from the inside, scaling the walls, penetrating the cultures. We'll hold up there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.